Welcome to Said Contra, a podcast of the Sacra Doctrina Project. You can find us online at sacradoctrinaproject.org. I am Father Dylan Schrader. And I'm Dr. Kevin Clark. In light of the recent passing of Pope Benedict XVI, this episode of Said Contra is a special tribute to Joseph Ratzinger, Pope Benedict. Following the conversation between Dr. Kevin Clark and myself, several other Sacra Doctrina Project members have statements in memory and in honor of Pope Benedict. It's hard to summarize. You can't ever really summarize someone's life, much less the whole intellectual vision of someone like uh, Ratzinger. But I would say something that struck me as a consistent theme among several throughout all of his writings, from his very early to his very late writings and into his papacy, was this uh, this scripture passage that he would go back to again and again from Galatians. I want to say it's Galatians 2.20 off the top of my head, but it's, I live no longer I, but Christ lives in me. And I noticed how he would uh, cite that or quote that uh, pretty often, but I think it also sort of became a key for me to um, getting into his theology a little bit, this idea that Christ becomes our identity, uh, that we are integrated into his death. And for Ratzinger, Pope Benedict, I think that had certainly uh, a real personal existence. I would say, to me, he was an example of someone who really, ha- really had faith, you know, and who knew the importance of his relationship with the Lord and was trying to be obedient uh, to what the Lord was asking of him. And uh, I got a sense that that he thought the Catholic faith was good news, and that it was worth sharing with people, and that uh, Jesus has had this definitive and irreputable character. And so that, that the purpose of, of theology was to just go back to Jesus again and again and again, and to reflect on on the mystery of the Lord, to seek the face of the Lord, uh, and that applying that to one's personal life meant living out Galatians 2.20. Uh, I live no longer I, but Christ lives in me. So uh, that's just one theme I noticed in his uh, in his theological writings. Uh, there are so many things we could talk about. You know, certainly uh, the liturgy was very important to him. He had a personal interest also in the relationship between Christianity and Europe, uh, in the European milieu, um, uh, Christian unity, communion, the nature of the relationship of bishops and the papacy, uh, the nature of the Word of God, and and its its uh, acceptance and faith and living out in the church today, and so many other things. So, uh, Kevin, what are what are your thoughts? What what are some things we can we can talk about as we reflect on the uh, the great legacy of Pope Benedict the Sixteenth? Well, I mean, what you said was just so deeply profound, and I think very much encapsulated by his last words, which were, Jesus, I love you. Um, And what better testament to a life lived for Christ, a life in which uh, Pope Benedict allowed Christ to live in him and um, in his service to the church. It was... Christ living in him, the spirit uh, dwelling in him, working in him, despite his his flaws. We all have flaws. We're all sinners. And, and Pope Benedict was very humble uh, about that. You know, it's interesting what, um, just a little a personal 
anecdote before we dive into the uh, the theology of of Joseph Ratzinger, Pope Benedict. Um, and when I was in my early twenties, I was working for uh, a newspaper, and in between my work designing pages, I would uh, read the Catholic news uh, on uh, coming across the wire, and it seemed that uh, many in in the press. Uh, as John Paul was aging and, and uh, uh, you know, preparing for his own death, many in the press were, uh, had their targets set uh, on a vitriol, right, uh, upon this figure of, of Joseph Ratzinger, Joseph Cardinal Ratzinger, who was uh, the head of the CDF, God's Rottweiler, as they called him. And, uh, and so, yeah, I thought it really curious. And then when John Paul II died and and the future Pope Benedict, Cardinal Ratzinger, was was leading the church essentially through um, the grieving process of John Paul II's death. Uh, that's when I came to see the person, you know, uh, and, and to really, you know, I was watching EWTN, watching these um, these historic events unfold. It was the first time a pope had died in my life. I was born in 1980. John Paul II was elected in 1978. So this was a new for me. And Pope uh, Cardinal Ratzinger just beautifully guided the whole church through this time of mourning. And his his message at that time about the dictatorship of relativism ahead of the papal conclave was deeply resonating with me. Uh, someone who had uh, seen the, uh, the, the, the evils of relativism, uh, which it, your truth, my truth, it doesn't matter. There is no truth. And so the first book that I read of his after he was elected Pope was, uh, was truth and tolerance, which was, you know his his treatment of this uh, this issue with more with more depth, looking more more to more relativism and the the, the importance of and centrality of truth. But um, but you know it was his his uh, homily that was even more striking to me was the one uh, after he was elected pope uh, when, when he he talked about that encounter with Christ, like what you were speaking about. And how, and he said, each of us is the 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 product of the the thought, the thoughts of God. Each of us is uh, willed. Each of us is loved. Each of us is necessary. Something like that. I don't have that quote in front of me at the moment, but um, that spoke deeply in in my own heart. That I I kind of, it kind of opened my mind up to the fact that, well. The theological assertion um, that there there is no necessity in creatures is obviously true, right? But on a certain level, uh, there there is a kind of a necessity to each one of us in the fact that God has written us into His divine economy. You know, we don't we we don't go to to heaven alone. We 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 bring the gospel to one another. And so I think that that message really, for me, set the 
set the tone for much of what he would do uh, in the papacy of really um, helping to bring about this new evangelization through 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 this message that that the the encounter with Christ truly is meant to transform uh, from within. And so w- one last thing here, and we'll, we'll kick it back over to you, but f- for me, um, my favorite work of his, a lot of people, it's very liturgy uh, for good reasons. Um, and Jesus Nazareth, Nazareth as well. I, I have my, I, I love that series, especially as a biblical theologian. Uh, Verbum Domini. We can talk about biblical theology in a little bit, but for me, that my favorite was "Behold the Pierced One," where he puts the the image of the Sacred Heart of Jesus, the heart that's open wide uh, to sinners, the heart that reveals the depths of divine condescension uh, into our human estate. Uh, that for me w- was his most magnificent work. But anyway, that I um uh, I really f- found a um a, a theological guide in Pope Benedict as I came to more and more read one after another of his his works. Everyone was so well thought out, so beautiful, such a good theological method where he is he is uh, uh conversing with the leaders in whatever field uh whatever branch of theology that that he's engaging in whatever text that's beautiful it's yeah for me it's hard to know where to begin there are within within the realm of theology i've got a whole shelf of of ratzinger's works and there's uh you know he he dealt he dealt with um with many different subjects important ones um but then as pope also i just think of the contributions that he made and some of the things he did that people may not realize the significance of or they may not realize you know all the all the all the little gestures or things that that happened during his papacy um for example, something as simple as the fact that he changed the papal coat of arms and he removed the tiara and put the the mitre on there, which not even John Paul II had done. You know, the, the papal coat of arms up to that point, it still had the tiara. And some people would, would disagree with the appropriateness of modifying a coat of arms by virtue of you know the nature of what a coat of arms is. But that was one of those little gestures that Benedict did, I think, to emphasize a an ecclesiology of the of the papacy that was really reducing the amount of activity or reducing the prestige of the pope as the pope you know not to deny the the, the validity of the office but i would suggest that benedict wanted to get back to a real traditional exercise of the papacy where the pope is mm-hmm. the bishop of rome and you know, is a center of communion for the other bishops of the world, but isn't necessarily the one who's running everything in the church all the time. You know, I think mm-hmm. he wanted to actually emphasize uh, the the individual bishops in communion with each other as successors of the apostles. And so he did these things that didn't get a whole lot of attention, but that that's one example, just 
putting the miter on the coat of arms, uh, something like decentralizing beatifications again, to go back to the more traditional practice there. Although he did want to beatify uh, John Henry Newman himself, uh, I think as a as a personal um, sort of act of homage to uh, to John Henry Newman, he wanted to do that be- that beatification himself. But other than otherwise, he actually decentralized beatifications more, and even things like in his his more well known bigger gestures with the liturgy, uh, for example, Summorum Pontificum, you know, which is probably one of the things he'll be remembered for. In that document, it's not so much a heavy-handed exercise of papal authority where he's saying that by my supreme power, I am changing things or dictating things. In fact, what he says is, I, you know, I'm recognizing that the traditional expression of the Roman rite, it was never abrogated and that it has a certain momentum or weight of its own and that you know, it's really not the place of uh, church authority to get in the way of that. You know, in, in a way, it's a non-exercise of power. He's he's declaring uh, this form this form of the Roman rite uh, is still here, and there is a certain sense of service that the Pope is supposed to have, or that you know, for that matter, bishops and priests are supposed to have, uh, or that the theologian is supposed to have. That we have a role of service to the truth, service to the word of God, service to the communion of the church and so forth. So, you know, he was the kind of person, I think, that you know, his personality probably uh, was such that he didn't want to accept the limelight or a lot of responsibility or management of things like that. But I think he had this this uh, sense of uh, that. The ch- I think he had this sense that the church had gotten into an awful lot of trouble by focusing too much on herself. Mm. that as the people of God, the church had spent a lot of time talking about itself and not enough time talking about God mm. or focused on God. And uh, so I would say that one of the things he, one of the problems of the modern world that he identified, and this goes hand in hand with the dictatorship of relativism, uh, was the eclipse of God and what he called a crisis of latria, even within the church. That is, the church had forgotten that our primary duty is to the worship of God and fidelity to the word of God. And before the church can do anything else right, before we can get anything else right, we've got to worship God. And if we don't do that, certainly no one else is going to. The world's not going to. So we've got to get the primacy of God right. We've got to put God absolutely first. And so that goes for how we do things on a practical day-to-day basis. It goes to how do you do theology? You know, is theology more about you being able to come up with something that is going to get a lot of attention or that's going to be innovative or that's going to be impressive or, you know, get your name on something or whatever? Uh, Or is it more about trying to tell the truth about God? Um, is your role as a pastor or a bishop or the bishop of Rome more about fidelity and service to what's been entrusted to you uh, than it is about trying to make a name for yourself or something like that? And so I think this this the- one of the things, that, just for me, this theme of the primacy of God and getting back to that is so important. Uh, the church has other things to do. We have to evangelize. We have to be in dialogue, and uh, we have a missionary aspect, 
But we can only do that if we have already uh, come together in communion with a focus toward God. Because otherwise, we're not able to engage the world or other religions from a from a sense of who we are as Catholics, because our because again our identity comes from Christ, and it comes from our it comes from accepting and putting on Christ uh, and dying to ourselves. So until we do that, we're not going to be effective at anything else. And I just think of you know some of the things in his papacy that highlighted that. I think that's a theme that comes out for me. Yeah, and I mean even dating back prior to his papacy if you look at the uh, the Ratzinger report where he makes that really helpful distinction between the the Petrine and the Marian dimensions of the church and that you you have you run into problems when you uh sacrifice one for the other but these both have to be intention um and especially if the the organizational aspect of the church and and the business management of the church the you know the patrine um uh, uh dispensation is is overemphasized then you know the the church really misses out on what she is meant to be doing which is offering worship uh, as you say yeah and i think um you know i think i can't recall which blogger it was but i, rem- I remember often um Benedict being called the Pope of Christian unity. And, and he he accomplished quite a lot in terms of uh, unifying the church and his eight-year papacy. Um, if you think about the the advances he made, and, and part, part of, you mentioned some more on um, Pontificum, but that was w- one of the 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 goals for that for that document was to help to achieve a greater unity from uh, with uh, by by bringing traditional Catholics who had perhaps separated themselves a bit uh, back into the fold and, and making more uh, room for them, but then also the um, the um, discourse with uh, with, with uh, Anglicans um, it, and his uh, work with the churches of the East. I mean. He he really had a, a profound impact in in eight years. Um, yeah, I agree. Yeah, I agree. No, that's a, and that's great. I think to mention those things together in conjunction, um, because when you hold to the primacy of God, and when you're you're convinced about that, and you're convinced about the truth of the Catholic faith, and you're secure in that. You know, that gives you a certain freedom in things that are not absolutely essential, a certain freedom for diversity in the areas where there can be diversity, mm. you know? So something like Anglicanorum Cetibus, which recognized that there are legitimate contributions that the, the Anglican communion uh, and the liturgical expression thereof and so forth and the heritage thereof can make in the expression of the, of the Roman Catholic faith, the Catholic faith. You know, we don't have to be threatened by that, right? So right. we're secure enough in our Catholicism that we don't need to impose in an absolutely rigid way all these restrictions on people who are longing for communion with the Catholic Church. You know, similar with some more in Pontificum, 
uh, I think in the letter accompanying that, among other things, among other observations, I think one of the things he said was that when when speaking of Catholics who have been hurt in the messy process of actually going through liturgical reform and the way that that was handled or has been handled, not always cleanly, not always humanely and pastorally, right? Just a very messy process. Uh, there are people who are seeking or trying to hang on to communion with the church. And I think one of the things he says is something like, why burden them with more than the faith itself requires? So why create extra requirements or conditions or standards that are not an essential part of the Catholic faith? You know, why can't we be a little more generous? Why can't we be generous with a certain a certain level of diversity? Uh, but that diversity has to be in the areas where there is freedom permitted. And that be that only becomes clear or possible once we have already firmly accepted the word of God and accepted the the essentials. Uh, so I think that that's that's just a beautiful illustration of that of that principle that he tried to put into practice. When we put the first things first, then everything else falls into place. When we put God first and we're secure in that, we develop a certain freedom that allows us to, to welcome in people and to have a diversity of expressions and things like that. Uh, and I think he did that very well. He had, I would say he had a real generosity, you know, mm -hmm. and recognizing um, that people were seeking communion for him. That's another, another major theme, I think, of his theological thought. If he wants. Yes. Communion. Especially as a, a communio. <laughs> would, yeah, exactly. Theologian, yes. Exactly. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. No, and, and um, you know, the, to to be, um, you know, very straightforward with our listeners, of course, many have, have uh, seen Pope Benedict being blamed for the various, you know, uh, um, trends within the traditionalist circles since Amorum Pontificum. And in a way, I find this to be kind of a, a akin to the post hoc ergo propter hoc fallacy that people fall into with regard to the Second Vatican Council, that, that you know, it's just because something happened after Vatican II, therefore it's the fault of Vatican II. Same thing with, you know, um, I won't name names here, but, but certain folks who have, uh, you know, kind of mainstreamed uh, a, a kind of a, a rigid uh, traditionalism uh, that is, that, that's more combative. That was not in the spirit of what Pope Benedict was seeking to accomplish with uh, Sumorum Pontificum. So um, I know that's, a, you know, a bit of a can of worms, so I don't want to dwell on that, but but uh, I think it's an important note when when considering his legacy because uh, he will continue to be uh, a, a, attacked over this and I think unfairly. But yeah, I think uh, it's worth mentioning that um, I, something that I said during Benedict's papacy and I've continued to say is just go back to what he actually said. Go back yes. to his writings. Go back to his speeches. He left us many writings, uh, several interviews, uh, many beautiful homilies, and he was pretty straightforward about his own personal thoughts and, and what he was trying to, or what he thought that he was trying to be faithful to, what he thought 
the Lord was asking him to do. So he gives the reasons for uh, what he said about the traditional forms of liturgy and his attitude toward it, toward it uh, in Samorum Pontificum, in the letter that accompanied it, in several interviews that he gave later on. And so I just tell people, go back to that. And I don't think in those writings, you'll find the rancor, the vitriol that sometimes comes across from people that identify as traditional Catholics. Um, and, and as you point out, similarly, in any in any group within the church, there are people who uh, sadly harm the communion of the church. And mm-hmm. that doesn't mean that everything associated with that group is suddenly bad or anything like that. Um, exactly. So, you know, and I remember there were times during his papacy where the media would come out with something that he had allegedly said or uh, something that he had uh, he had done or said. And and I would always, after my initial shock, try to look up and go to the actual source. And then you'd read it and you'd find, oh, okay, you know, there's some nuance there that the headlines were not capable of capturing, you know? Right. But yeah, Pope uh, cancels Christmas. Pope, uh, Pope Benedict says that the... Uh, the the donkey and the ox were not at the stable. <laughs> That's right. I remember that. Which you know, because uh, yeah, I think I think the 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 infancy narrative volume of Jesus of Nazareth had come out or something, and or and yeah. and he he he, yeah, stated the commonplace, the the incredibly well known fact that the gospel narratives don't mention the donkey and you know, right. the ox, but uh, but Isaiah does right. Yeah, it it comes from Isaiah. And, you know, being people of tradition, we naturally know that this prophecy was fulfilled by the the ox and the donkey being there. That's so funny. Yeah, that's right. That was one example. But yeah, and and there were countless others. And yeah, the message is always the same. If you're, you know, you're hearing funny things about any of the popes, whether it be Benedict or, or Pope Francis or... Uh, to go to to the words of the, the pontiff himself rather than those who make their names from the uh um you know sensationalized uh spinning of that those those profound words um well we've talked about uh benedict the um uh, liturgist I, did you want to add anything about uh spirit of the liturgy or shall we move on to talk about uh uh, Benedict, the biblical scholar. Um, yeah, just one final word. There's some. There's so much we could say um, in terms of the liturgy. Yeah, spirit of the liturgy. I think holds up. It's a beautiful book. Uh, he wrote an earlier book called Feast of Faith, uh, and liturgical themes also come across in other places. Of course, in his writings and things. Um, one one document I would also point to that came out during his papacy is the. Uh, post-synodal apostolic exhortation um, on the liturgy, uh, Sacramentum Caritatis, or on the Eucharist, more specifically, I should say, Sacramentum Caritatis, which I hope is not forgotten because it contains a a series of just beautiful connections and and, um, reflections on different aspects of the the nature of the celebration of the Eucharist and, and the liturgy in general. So Sacrament of Caritatis is, an, is another liturgical document I would point to. Um, and I'll just say one final word maybe about Samorum Pontificum. There's so much I think that it, it could be said about the importance of that document. But 
one one aspect of of what I think Benedict saw, uh, and he talked about this very early in his career. You know, by the 1970s, he was already talking this way. But the church, following the Second Vatican Council, had something of an identity crisis because of the way things were handled and the and because of the divisions that had emerged within the within the people of God. He recognized that the church had to come to terms with that. And I think one of the areas, of course, was the celebration of the liturgy, because again, the primacy of God and the primacy of latria, of the worship of God within the church, is so important that if the church cannot agree on the worship of God in its principles, we can't agree on our identity in a certain sense. And I think part of the part of what he called the uh, hermeneutic of rupture, which was to be rejected, was this understanding that at some point, you know, in the Second Vatican Council or in the 1960s, the religion that the Catholic Church had been up to that point had ceased to exist. And from that point onward, we're like a different religion now. Uh, and of course, that can't be the case. And so I think one of the things that, that Simorum Pontificum highlights is, is this fact, which may surprise some people who would consider themselves traditionalists. And it is the fact that because the Catholic faith is the same before and after Vatican II, the way we prayed before Vatican II can express the faith we have after Vatican II, and I would say vice versa. Mm -hmm. And therefore, the liturgical forms from before Vatican II can't be considered harmful. There can't We can't suddenly say, well, this no longer expresses what we believe, because mm -hmm. our faith is, is fundamentally the same before and after the Council, and therefore the, the way we pray could be the same as well. And so what that does is, on the one hand, it recognizes the nobility and the lasting goodness of tradition, but it also tells us something about, about that, that namely that the traditional forms of worship can express the faith that was expressed at the Second Vatican Council. So I would caution people on every side of this issue to avoid that hermeneutic of rupture and instead to embrace what he called the hermeneutic of continuity, that there can be development within the church, but there, there can't be a total break. Um, you know, we've, our faith has got to be the same yesterday as it was today. And therefore what was sacred yesterday can't suddenly be something evil and harmful today. Yeah. And that's a good segue into uh, Ratzinger Benedict, the biblical theologian, the hermeneutic of continuity, uh, which is uh, central to his his thought regarding the scriptures. Um, it, you know, <clears throat> um, just a little a, a brief side point. You mentioned Vatican II, and I, I just wanted to uh, draw our listeners' attention to this. But but uh, young Ratzinger was a peritus. Uh, at the Second Vatican Council, and in some ways, uh, his his death is um, it, it represents a, a a kind of a closure to the what I think is like the guided interpretation of Vatican II. We think about people who were actually present at Vatican II and were able to then guide. The church's reception of um, 
you know, how we read and understand the documents that came out of this council. And uh, Cardinal Ratzinger, Pope Benedict was such a great um, uh, guide for, for doing that. Uh, but anyway, back to his uh, uh, biblical theology, you know, he was um, on the Pontifical Biblical Commission and the uh, president on the, of the Pontifical Biblical Commission for some time. Um, I was looking back at his uh, his Catholic hierarchy page after he died, and uh, I was amazed to, no to note that he, he was a priest for over 70 years. And, and uh, he celebrated Mass, I think, the last time, the day before he died, unless he uh, celebrated that, that that morning, I don't know. But um, celebrated Mass the day before he died, priest for over 70 years. Um, it's just a beautiful uh, testament to the power of his vocation and his his yes to God. But, um, but yeah, so he was um, uh, in the... Uh, Pontifical Biblical Commission. So he was very much uh, uh, involved in the church's uh, reception of De Verbum, uh, the the Second Vatican Council's document on the sacred scriptures, which you know any theology any theology student should read probably at least a dozen times, um, uh, probably for every class. <laughs> It's so so important, but uh, I really think that Verbum Domini, uh, his post synodal uh, episodic exhortation, uh, is a, a wonderful synthesis of his interpretation of how De Verbum speaks to the world. Uh, it comes, you know, six uh, what sixteen years after the. Um, the uh, catechism, I believe, uh, which which further elaborates the um, the the uh, doctrine of sacred scriptures, but um, but in in between, um, it, it, while he was still uh, while he was still cardinal, he gave this really important lecture that I would encourage everyone to read. It's in it's in a book uh, called uh, God's Word. I believe it's scripture tradition office or something like that. But this, uh, this lecture was known as the Erasmus lecture. And it was given, I believe in 1988 at Fordham university. But, um, but therein he lays out what he, um, what he recommends for the biblical Academy. And if you could condense it into one phrase, uh, you might call it a criticism of criticism, that he recommends that the academy be a little bit more self-aware of its own biases in in how it asserts scientific truths as though these were um, irre irrefutable and completely unbiased uh, proclamations of science the science of uh, the understanding of texts and history. And he doesn't at all deny the, uh, the, the, the power of the historical critical method for illuminating the historical aspects of the text, of the biblical text. But at the end of the day, of course, we have to rec reckon 
with the fact that before us we have a canon and that we have this received work. Um, so even if you believe in the various source theories, you still have to reckon with the fact that, but there is this text where it's all together. And <clears throat> so for him, uh, the emphasis is on this hermeneutic of continuity. In other words, reading the um, reading the scriptures such that we don't let the philosophy of uh, Kant get in the way where we're suddenly, um, you know, second guessing all the miracles and uh, uh, arguing that there are uh, later embellishments that the worshiping community has invented um but that there there is this continuity between old and new between word and event and and, and so we the, the the biblical theologian has to he in his words check his um well actually to paraphrase him but to to check one's biases to check one's philosophical presuppositions at the door and read the, the the scriptures with the church. So, um, but in, I mean, his his impact there uh, is so profound, and um, uh, I, this is one of the areas where he will be uh, so sorely missed. But he's left such a great treasury of works behind for us. Not only the ones I mentioned, but then the <clears throat> the three volumes on Jesus of Nazareth. Uh, which, you know, it was interesting for when he was publishing those because he emphasized how that they were not part of his papal magisterium, but were almost like um, uh, him as a scholar, him as a biblical theologian. <laughs> but me, the Catholic reader, can't help but notice that he also is Pope. So it's, it, I almost wonder if there's like an, an in-between level of authority there that, uh, uh, that the reader should consider. But, um, but anyway, that's, uh, th that would be an interesting, uh, argument to make, but I don't know. Oh. Uh, you have any <laughs> thoughts? Yeah, I love the, I love the Jesus of Nazareth books. And it was, it was so exciting when they were coming out volume by volume when the, uh, the fine, and I remember he, he wasn't this seems so long ago now, but I remember he expressed that he wasn't sure he would live to finish it. Yeah. He was worried about his health back then. And you know, I guess for good reason. Uh, and he was, it was, so it was, so it was kind of a relief when the third, the third prequel volume on the, in, the infancy narratives finally came out. And I remember that uh, I think was published. It might've been, it might've been during Advent or it was very close to it because that year when it came out, I think my homilies for the end of Advent and the entire season of Christmas were based on it. So for Christmas itself, for the epiphany, for the baptism of the Lord, I went back to the earlier volumes, but uh, all those feast days in there, I just took directly from, you know, I didn't just read it, but I, I certainly borrowed a lot from it very heavily. And I've actually continued to do that. Um, one, because in addition to the theological books, and the 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 more official church documents that we have under his papacy, the some of the sources that he left to us would be his homilies, 
his Wednesday audiences. He did a series on the fathers of the church, on the medieval yeah. theologians, and so forth. And there's a lot of valuable material in those things. So it's uh, there's just a wealth there's a, a wealth there. And um, I guess one of the things I've noticed just in reading his writings over that span such a long period of time is there there are certainly are changes as you would expect, but he's remarkably consistent. Mm-hmm. There are some intellectuals whose early writings and later writings are like night and day, you know, where there's a complete change of course. And I there are there are some real uh, themes that just remain constant throughout his his life, um, and it's just really interesting to see that. The other thing that I have always enjoyed are the interviews. You know, he he gave several interviews. Some of them have been published by as books. There are even some YouTube videos where you can you can listen to him speak uh, off the cuff. And it's amazing his ability to express very precise thoughts in some detail extemporaneously. That's that's very difficult, but he, he can do it. He speaks in just in complete paragraphs in some of these mm-hmm. interviews. But it's really interesting to hear just the the little the little things that you wouldn't find in an official document somewhere. So I hope that I'm not making this up. This is something that comes to my mind as an example. And I think I re- I think I remember reading this in an interview. Uh, someone had asked him about one of the things he did at a certain point, kind of early in his papacy, which was to wear the Camaro, the traditional papal head covering. And people had speculated about the significance of a gesture like that. And is this a return of the dark ages? Is is you know what what is the signal that he's trying to give to the church? Uh, through this this uh this kind of this uh, occult sign that's uh, you know what's what's he trying to signal to the church through this action and i think someone had asked him in an interview and the answer was something along the lines of like it was very cold that day and he had to go outside and they had one of the papal camaros from the previous popes just like on display or something and so he <laughs> just put it on because it was cold outside and there wasn't yeah. any deeper meaning to it necessarily. Um, although I would also add with some of the liturgical vestments and things that he brought back, uh, I think by doing so, he was trying to emphasize the the continuity of the church again from past ages and into the modern age. Uh, so we have not left everything old behind, uh, but rather there's continuity there. And he saw himself as the successor of St. Peter and of all the popes up to that point. Uh, so not, not just himself, you know, not his own personality, not his own individual person, uh, but to use the visible signs that had been passed down from his predecessors, I think, to emphasize the the humility of the, the humility that the individual person should have in the office. Mm. And Along those lines, I think you could even uh, talk about the the uh, abdication as you know part of his connection with with Pope Celestine, right? That I remember, um, I think there was uh, you know he sp- he spoke about uh, praying at Pope Celestine's tomb, but you know the media 
uh, um, framed this this event of the the uh, the papal resignation as a break with hundreds of years of tradition. Well, the papacy is two thousand years long, and so. It, if something hasn't been done in hundreds of years, it's not a break with tradition to do it again. It's not like there's a, you know, an old tradition and a new tradition and those are different. Um, but um, yeah. Well, yeah, it's just along that, the accusation that he was some kind of uh, rigid arch traditionalist, you know, uh, in some ways I find that, I find that, that really funny, you know, it, because you look at some of the things that he actually did, I already yeah. mentioned something that most people didn't think about, which was removing the tiara from the papal coat of arms, which again, even John Paul II had not done. But he renounced the title Patriarch of the West, or he stopped using the title Patriarch of the West. Uh, he resigned the papacy. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> you know, he did he did some things that are not exactly considered uh, ultra traditional, right? And that, and that was one of them. Yeah. So, you know, he, he's a very complex figure and, um, uh, you know, but, uh, I, for me, it comes back to, uh, his, his, uh, his understanding of himself as a theologian and, and a scholar. I mean, he wanted, uh, during John Paul II's papacy, he wished to retire, uh, to, to retreat to Bavaria and spend the rest of his days in study. And no doubt he would have had the occasion to write much, much more and leave us with much, much more. But it, his fidelity to God's uh, call uh, kept him in service. And I think about, um, you know, Bonaventure, for example, who Pope Benedict wrote his doctoral thesis about he wrote about the theology theology of history in Bonaventure. And, and Bonaventure is a kind of a kindred spirit for him too, because of how much Bonaventure was pressed into um, that administrative service as well uh, for the church um, to the to the point of sacrifice of theological work. But it amazes me how much he was still able to produce. When I think about how much I'm able to write with, uh, with, with my work day. It's for, you know, I, I don't know how he did it, but he's, he's a good model for us in terms of, um, you know, really finding time to carve out uh, of your day for the intellectual life. Uh, and that's one of the best examples that he's, he's left with me uh, in terms of um, just really, seeking the Lord in theological study. A lot of people get the idea that that uh, theology is about the practical. You know, if you're not doing something practical with your theology, you're you're wasting your time, right? Um, but theology, first and foremost, is about the the speculative. It's about uh, seeking the divine things, which then, of course, informs the practical and propels us to uh, to put uh, into to respond to grace, right? So that the Spirit may move us uh, to uh, to act for the church. Um, and he was a great example of that. Amen. Amen. Yeah. Um, goodness. 
Well, there's a lot more that could be said. Uh, do you have any final thoughts? Well, I, you know, I would, I would really encourage everyone to read, and we can put it in the uh, the show notes, uh, the spiritual testament of Pope Benedict, which was uh, almost like a succinct thank you to his loved ones, and just a, uh, a beautiful expression of 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 gratitude to God and to his family and his friends um, to uh, for their support, their goodness and provisions, but then also a final word of, of caution to, uh, uh, to the church, not to be taken, uh, taken up by the spirit of the day, um, which very much resonates with with what he brought into the papacy in in terms of his warning about the dictatorship of of relativism. And one final anecdote before um, b- before I uh, uh, step aside here is that um, there was I was recently at a Communio fiftieth anniversary conference in um, in Rochester, New York. And uh, and Pope Benedict sent a letter of gratitude for uh, uh, um, to Saint Bernard's uh, School of Theology and Ministry, essentially thanking them for for putting on this conference. And you know, he he only had a few months left, and and there he was it, it, on the uh, the Zoom uh, d- during I believe during Jean Luc Marion's uh, speech. There, there said Pope Emeritus Benedict the Sixteenth was one of the, the the Zoom guests at this conference. So, um, I'll, I'll always uh, have this sense that that Pope Benedict, Pope Emeritus uh, Benedict, and I were while well, we we never met. At least we attended the same conference at one point. <laughs> so, wow, that's fascinating. It, a yeah. rare uh, a rare time when he used a computer as well. So yeah. Uh, wait. Oh, we didn't even talk about that, but you know, he it was during his papacy that uh, that we we had at Pontifex on Twitter. <laughs> That's right, uh, the papal <laughs> tweets. That's right, that got started. Papal tweets. <laughs> oh goodness. Um, well, there's a lot more that could be said. I would encourage people, along with you, to read that spiritual testament and to go back to his his writings, his writings as pope, his writings as a theologian, his homilies, his interviews. And I know that he would want us even more than talking about him to pray for him. May his soul and the souls of all the faithful departed through the mercy of God rest in peace. Amen. My name is Pater Edmund Waldstein of Stift Heiligenkreuz in Austria. I'm just getting ready to drive to Rome for the funeral of Pope Benedict XVI with some of our students from Heiligenkreuz. Our theological academy here is named after him, and we're all very moved and saddened by his death, but very grateful for his life and for his, especially for his great theological work. He was really an extraordinary theologian, a German theologian at a time when German theology was in crisis, a humble theologian who really taught 
from his contemplation of the mysteries of faith at a time when so many German theologians were infected with intellectual pride and taught kind of theories of their own that undermined the truths uh, of revelation. He was a man who really was faithful to scripture and tradition and uh, tried to illuminate the truths that come to us from scripture and tradition. At a time when many thought that the results of natural science or of historical sciences cast doubt on the truths of the faith, he was able to defend them convincingly. Um, I think the, the heart of his theological work was really his study of sacred scripture uh, and at the same time also his love of the sacred liturgy, which uh, is the original locus of the reading and interpretation of sacred scripture. Dr. Daniel Garland, Joseph Ratzinger, Pope Benedict, um, his influence upon my life is nothing short of life-changing. I was a theater major and Episcopalian when I first encountered him, and uh, the first work that I read of his was God in the World, um, and I quickly moved on to others such as Spirit of Liturgy, Call to Communion. Uh, these books are the impetus for my love for theology. Uh, they're also the impetus from my deepening of faith in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And ultimately, they're responsible for my becoming Catholic. I owe such a, a debt of gratitude to Pope Benedict. Um, I started reading him as Joseph Ratzinger as an Episcopalian. He became uh, the Pope, and I had the distinct pleasure of going around as an Episcopalian, telling people that uh, the Pope of the Catholic Church, Pope Benedict, is my favorite theologian. Um, and I've followed him ever since I discovered him. I kept reading his works, uh, Principles of Catholic Theology, Call to Communion. Um, three of the greatest uh, are the ones that most impacted my my career as a theologian are uh, his post-apostolic synodal letter, Verbum Domini, um, Deus Caritas Est, his encyclical, uh, the Jesus of Nazareth series. Um, also, uh, Fides Eratio, I know it's John Paul II, but it's rumored to be ghostwritten by uh, Fisichella at Ratzinger, um, as it's called in Rome. Um, those, those four works are ones that, if I don't know where they are, I, I get anxious if I can't find them in my library, because those are the ones I come back to over and over again. And, uh, you know, in many ways, I consider uh, Pope Benedict to be a spiritual father. Um, he is the model for how I want to be a theologian. Um to use the phrase of von Balthasar, he he does theology on his knees, and that is uh, what I hope to emulate. Um, and he is such a great example for all theologians. Um, he, in many ways, he's a second Newman. Um, 
it's interesting as an Episcopalian, as an Anglican, it's not Newman that led me into the Catholic Church. It's Joseph Ratzinger. Uh, like Newman, he has such a gravitas to his work, and yet his work is is so deep and and rich and yet clear and concise. He presents it in a way that is easily accept, uh, accessible, um, and yet. His work is so profound. Uh, on every page of his writings, you can see his love for our Lord. And, um, you know, it's, I, I owe Pope Benedict such a debt of gratitude for bringing, uh, being the impetus for my movement towards the Catholic Church, for my love for theology. Um, I, it, it, it's, a debt that I am eternally grateful for, um, and I will dearly, dearly miss him. Brandon L. Wanless, Assistant Professor of Dogmatic Theology, the St. Paul Seminary, University of St. Thomas. I used to read daily from the Ignatius Press volume, um, the edited um, excerpts from Joseph Ratzinger, Paul Benedict, co-workers in the vineyard, and found that the way that Pope Benedict explained in modern language the truths of the faith without um, removing their ancient aspect of truth, retaining the truth, but communicating it in a new way was very effective for me in helping me to learn to be a good teacher and to put into my own language for my own students and those um, with whom I interact with in the theological world, how do I explain this to someone today? The truth that I can perceive as a theologian, how do I translate that? How do I help them to understand the impact of that. Um, lots of other things I could say about Pope Benedict and his, his legacy as a theologian, as a teacher, as a as Pope, um, but especially just thinking about that, his impact on me in my own teaching and thinking. And I'll be really forever grateful for that and so saddened to hear um, of his death. Thank you for listening to our tribute to Joseph Ratzinger, Pope Benedict XVI. This is Bid Said Contra, a podcast of the Sacra Doctrina Project. You can find us online at sacradoctrinaproject.org.